I want to say I appreciate Mitch's prayer on my behalf. He mentioned a word in his prayer where he said complacency, prayer against complacency, and I want to talk to you about that tonight. I want to talk to you about bewaring of apathy. There was a Time Magazine article that was released not too long ago, and the title of that article was, It Seems Like It's Harder Than Ever to Care About Anything. Now, Time Magazine is not an authority on the sin struggles of mankind by any stretch of the imagination, but there were some interesting things that I saw in that article that got me to thinking about this subject, um, and I wanted to share some of those things with you. They did some studies about things that people were most concerned about going into the, I guess it was the midterm elections in 2022, and some of the discoveries were really interesting. The most concerning thing that people had on their mind was strengthening the economy, Mitch mentioned uh, creature comforts. It's like he had my lesson on his mind somehow. That's what people were most concerned about is just creature comforts. And at the very bottom of the list was dealing with drug addiction. And that doesn't just mean illicit drugs, but that means, you know, the opioid addiction, people getting addicted to painkillers and things like that. And I just thought that the disparity between those two things was very interesting. How there's so much emphasis put on, I want creature comforts. I want to be comfortable. I want things to be cheap. I want this to be a certain way with the economy. But when it comes to people struggling with sin, when it comes to people dying in their sin and struggling with addiction, that's close to the bottom of the list. And I thought that was very interesting. I think that we can see as we look around today that there is a problem of indifference. There's a problem of apathy in the world as we look around today. Now the news might skew those things in a certain way where it says that there are people who are up in arms about certain social justice issues or certain injustices in the world, but make no mistake, there's an, ep there's an epidemic of apathy in the world today, and if we aren't careful, it will creep into the church, and we need to guard against it, and we need to be aware of it. So as I built the study, I wanted to think about what was the causes of apathy, what were the effects that it had upon us, and what were some things that we could do to prevent it. Let's define apathy first. So apathy is a lack of interest, enthusiasm, and concern. And I believe that this is a great danger to the growth of the church. If we allow apathy and indifference to the things of the kingdom to set in, it'll cause us to fall apart as Christians. It'll cause our families to fall apart because we will be indifferent about spreading the gospel. We will be indifferent about teaching our children. We will be indifferent about fellowship. We simply won't care if we allow these things to set in. And if you don't think apathy is a great danger for us, I would invite you to look at what uh, God had to say about the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. He says it so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Neither cold nor hot, you're not on fire for me, you don't hate me, but you're simply in the middle. You don't care. He says I'll vomit you out of my mouth. That's strong imagery. There's nothing that can be construed about that as anything but negative. That's a bad place to be to be spewed out of God's mouth because of indifference and because of a lack of concern, because of a lack of fire and desire to serve. Let's consider what kind of people God has called us to be in contrast to being lukewarm and to being indifferent. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, I'm not about to stand up here and say that I'm always the zealous one or that I'm the one that's never lukewarm because that's the farthest thing from the truth. But what I'm saying is that the reason that we can fall into apathy, the reason that we can fall into indifference, is because we lose sight of the standard. We lose sight of the standard of being zealous. 
And sometimes it's not just falling short of that standard, but it's realizing what's behind that standard. What's behind that standard is the truth. And I think the farther and farther we get away from the truth, the further we will fall into apathy and complacency. There was a group of people in the 3rd century B.C. These were an interesting group of people. Go do some research on them if you ever get interested. But they were called the Epicureans. They were led by a guy named Epicurus. These people had a really interesting philosophy about life. Um, Basically what they looked at, their worldview was that the universe was two things. It was matter and void. That's all there was. Something and nothing. Groundbreaking, I know. But it brought forth this philosophy about life. Because there's only something and nothing, there's just matter and void. Epicureanism thus means devotion to pleasure, comfort, and high living with a certain nicety of style is the only reasonable direction of life. You might think strengthening the economy, creature comforts, that that's all that matters. Now, this is as far away from the truth as you can get as being of this persuasion. Now, I don't think that there's anybody here that's in danger of becoming an Epicurean today. I would hope not of falling into this line of thinking, but what I'm trying to say is that the farther we get away from the truth, the inevitable result is going to be indifference towards things because ultimately, what, what does it matter? What does it matter of, of pursuing truth? What does it matter of pursuing things that are, that are good and holy and wholesome if there's only matter and void? There's a really interesting, uh, you might call this a, an epitaph or a, or a writing on a headstone. This is what they would put on their headstones. It's translated to say, I was not, I came to be, I am no longer, I do not care. It's cheerful, isn't it? (laughs) But that's the ultimate result of that standard of living. That's the ultimate result when that is your worldview. When you are that far away from the truth, what is the point of caring anymore? What is the point of caring about anything when you're that far away from the truth? And I think as the farther and farther we get away from the truth of God's word, if we allow it to slip in our lives, inevitably indifference will settle in if we are not careful. We've got zeal on one side where Paul says to live is Christ, and then we have Epicurus on the far other end of the spectrum saying, I don't care. I'm known for my groundbreaking charts, but I just look at this as as the, as the... way that you would picture it. The closer you are to the truth, the more time you spend with the truth, the more zeal you will have. The farther you get away from the truth, the more apathetic towards everything you'll be. Somebody who knows how to make charts really well is probably going to criticize how I did that and how it doesn't exactly match up with what I'm saying, but you get the idea. I hope you do at least. So what are some of the truths that we're talking about here that we need to get close to so that we don't fall into apathy? What about the truth of the laboring in the Lord? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's knowing the truth that our labor is not in vain that causes us to be zealous for that work and to not fall into apathy. What about the truth of studying God's word? Hebrews 11 and 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped to every good work. The truth behind those words, the truth behind studying God's word, 
and the benefit that it brings us is what produces the zeal to study it. And if we're distant from that truth, we're not going to desire it. We're going to be indifferent towards it. Are we apathetic about sin? Are we apathetic and indifferent about the consequences of it? Romans chapter 6, verse 23 through 23 says, But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, of ever, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we don't believe there's something beyond the physical world, what's the point of being set free from sin? What's the point of bearing fruits of holiness? Why not just take a page out of Epicurus's book and say, it doesn't matter, just creature comforts. That's all that matters. It's knowing the truth that there is eternal life in Christ that motivates us to live as a sacrifice to God. So we know these things. We understand that they're, they're written down for our benefit and that they're there for us to, to glean truth from. But there's a disconnect somewhere between these two things. We can read these words, we can read what they say, and they should produce a level of zeal and a level of drive to serve, to study, to grow. But I believe that the disconnect between, those, or between these two things is the reason that we have apathy or the reason that we have complacency in our life. And it's the disconnect between the words and the faithfulness of God. If you want to know plenty about the faithfulness of God, I would invite you to read the first 11 chapters of Romans. It's a beautiful, sweeping epic of God's faithfulness, of how it's lined out for, for all to see how he was faithful to his people, how he continued to be faithful to his people. And it's that faithfulness that allows us to look at a passage like Romans 12 and 1 where he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This is my favorite therefore in all of Scripture. Paul is, is big on therefores. To me, this is the therefore of therefores. It's after he says this, as it's tying back to those first 11 chapters where God has demonstrated his faithfulness to his people. So because God has been faithful to his people, what should we do? We should present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. That's what produces zeal. That's what kills apathy, is the faithfulness of God and meditating and realizing that that's what has happened. It's that faithfulness that causes us to say, I'm all in. There's nothing I won't sacrifice. There's nothing I won't forsake. There's no devotion I won't take on for God. He's been faithful to me. How can I be anything but faithful to him? That word reasonable is translated from the Greek word logikos. It means logical. We would look at our apathy and our indifference and we would say, this is not a logical response to what God has done for us. This is not a logical response to the faithfulness that God has shown us. To come face to face with God's faithfulness and do anything but present our bodies as living sacrifices, all in, full of zeal, holy and acceptable, it'd be illogical. It's where it doesn't make sense to skip the assemblies. It doesn't make sense to forsake fellowship. It doesn't make sense to let our Bibles gather dust. It doesn't make sense to not pray. Those things are illogical when we think about how faithful God has been to us. And apathy, indifference, it's illogical when we realize how faithful God has been. We need to consider what apathy will do to us, what effects it has on our life and to those around us. And I want to consider apathy as it pertains to us and our families. 
You know, suppose you as the leader of your home, as a father, allow apathy to set in your life and you allow your spiritual responsibilities to slip. Consider what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. This is after he's gotten done talking about the supremacy of Christ. He says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. That word for earnest heed there is the Greek word for seko. It means to hold. It means to pay attention to. It needs to be cautious, to apply oneself to. Those are all in direct opposition to apathy. They're all in direct opposition to not caring. And what's the reason for giving this earnest heed? It's lest we drift away. Because that's a truth we need to come to grips with. It'll happen. If we don't give earnest heed to the truth, we're going to drift away. We're going to get caught in complacency and indifference. You know, these are just some personal examples that I've looked at in my life of things that have shown up in, in my own life that just scream apathy. Now, these are not to highlight me or anything. Maybe you can relate to some of these things. But one has been forsaking prayer. Specifically, you know, when it's time to go to bed. You know you should say a prayer with your spouse. You, you know it's been probably months since you've said a prayer. And then you get reminded that you should. And then you get on a roll doing it for a little bit. And then you forget. And I get it. We're, we're all tired. We've got kids that wake up in the middle of the night. We've got all kinds of things happening in our lives. Poor sleep habits. But the truth is, is that I don't mind staring at my phone for 30 minutes before we go to bed looking at mindless things on the internet. But I have a problem when I need to bow my knee in prayer before the Father. But it's because I'm indifferent. It's because I don't care. Ignoring op opportunities to fill our minds with the Word. You know, when I get indifferent, I notice that on my drive to work, I tend to not put on a podcast or put on an audio Bible or even ponder the truths of God's Word. I tend to just sit there mindlessly or put on a YouTube video in the background that I can listen to that has nothing to do with Scripture. Another thing that apathy can cause us to do is to live in unconfessed sin. Because what's the point of confessing? Because I'm just going to sin again. What's the point? What's the point of going through the uncomfortable uh, side effects of confessing sin, of having to change? And this is the one that really hits me pretty hard. It's being amused into the point of indifference. It's taking in so many creature comforts, so many points of stimulation, so many uh, different things that we can look at or watch on television or our screens to the point that we're pretty much amused to where nothing else can ever satisfy our senses anymore except for those things. And it caused me to think of this, in a world where we have everything we want, what's the point of denying ourselves for sake of contentment in Christ? This was really meant to be a lesson about fatherhood and things I wanted to talk about as a father, but when I heard that Dee was going to be talking about fathers, I had to take a, a little bit of a sidestep. So some of this is going to do, deal specifically with fathers. But I want to impress something on us all. The good leadership of a father will bless a home greatly, and the bad leadership of a father will curse it beyond imagination. An apathetic and indifferent father will be a curse on a family. It'll kill a family's spiritual health. And I want to look at a couple of different biblical examples of fathers and how they influence their children to make this point. First one I want to look at is Jacob and his sons. You know, there's a, we read these stories about Jacob in Genesis where he uh, tricked his, his father into giving him his, his other son's blessing or tricking his uh, brother Esau out of his inheritance. And we might say that Jacob is quite the trickster. And then we come to a story in Genesis chapter 34 
where Jacob and his family are in a foreign land, and Jacob's daughter, uh, Dina, is defiled by a man by the name of Shechem. And after that, Shechem decides that he likes uh, Dina enough to marry her, so he wants to broker an alliance with these Israelites, or with Jacob and his sons. And when they come to broker that alliance together, Jacob's sons aren't having any of it. They don't want this alliance, they don't, want to, they don't want to be associated with these people, and this is their response. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully, because he had defiled Dina, their sister. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. So I want us to pay attention where it says he said this deceitfully. They weren't wanting those men to be circumcised because they thought that that would be good for them in their alliance and to be faithful to God. In that sense, they had a, a motive behind saying, we want you to be circumcised. And if you go on later in the chapter, you'll find out that the reason that they did that was so that on the third day after that circumcision, they could go in there and they could slaughter those men. Now, am I saying that Jacob took his sons aside as they were growing up and said, you know, this is a neat trick you can try with circumcision one day when you're in a jam? with some people. I don't think he ever did that, but I do think there's a clear pattern between the example of a father and the example of the children. Let's think about David and Amnon. We know that David is a man who struggled with sin. He's a man who battled a lot of sin in his life, and we know that he was someone who at one point in his life looked after another woman with lust in his heart, and he laid with her, and he committed adultery. And then we read later on where Amnon finds his sister Tamar, his half-sister Tamar, and he wants to lay with her. And after she says no, it said he would not hear her voice, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Now, did David want this for, her, for his boy? I don't think so. But we see a pattern between the behavior of the father and the behavior of the children. Let's think about Adam and Cain. We know that Adam, in Genesis chapter 3, when he's confronted with his sin by God and he asks, did you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What's his first response? He says, well, the woman that you gave to me, so he's already trying to pass the buck. He has a problem with taking responsibility. And then later on we read about how Cain and Abel offer a sacrifice to God and Cain is not accepted and Cain is angry. And what does God say to Cain? He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So there's obviously a problem here. There's sin involved in Cain's offering. And we can corroborate that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, where it says, Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil, and his brothers were righteous. And then after he's not accepted, he's so angry that he kills his brother in his anger. And then when he's confronted with his sin, what does he say? When God says, where is your brother? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He's just deflecting. He's not taking responsibility, just like his dad. And then in Genesis 4.13, he says that my punishment is greater than I can bear. Now, am I saying that Adam taught his son not to have responsibility deliberately? No. But again, we can see a clear pattern between the behavior of the father and the behavior of the children. The sinful habits of a husband and a father will ruin a family in one way or another. And if a man as a leader of his home is apathetic towards his responsibilities, history shows that you can bet there's going to be a good chance your family is going to be apathetic as well. They'll follow your example 
or find a better one. You know, I heard this quote once, and it's, it's always made an impression on me about fathers and their leadership in the home or their lack of leadership. It says, nothing in our actions or inaction will not leave an impact on our home. Man's failing to lead is actually his leading in failure. The apathy of a leader in the home will cause a family to fail in the race. Let's read about some of man's responsibilities in his family. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That's not apathy. Loving as Christ loved the church. That's when, when your wife says to you, I, I would like to study more, I would like to read more, I would like to pray more. There have, I can't tell you the number of times in the seven years that we've been married that I've failed in that, where it's been brought up, I would like to study more, I would like to read more. And I say, yeah, we need to do that. And apathy sets in, and life happens, and we let it slide. But it's this kind of love that when that opportunity comes up, you don't let it slide. You know, this is not to step on any toes but my own, but I, I can't help but think about this. I can't help but think about the day that I got married and you think back to that day and you think about all the weddings that you see and all the times that you see young couples getting married and you, see, and you hear the things that are said between those, those couples and people say to those couples and, and you hear the phrase, that man has a lot of potential to be a godly leader. That man has a lot of potential to be a wonderful leader in the home and to be a strong Christian man. And I'm afraid if we let apathy sit in too much, we'll only ever have had potential. We won't ever realize it and that'll all it'll ever be. What about our children? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says, And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And then Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, Fathers do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now there's been a lot of debate over what that phrase, provoke your children to wrath, means. Now, I know as a recovering child myself, my dad probably did a lot of things to aggravate me growing up, but I don't think that this verse is talking about, you know, fathers don't tease and don't, you know, have fun with your kids. What I believe it's talking about is that fathers should not behave in such a way that causes intense frustration or discouragement in their children. And if a father shows apathy, complacency in his home, that's going to lead to frustration in the children. If we show indifference toward the church and towards the word of God, towards our responsibilities, it will have an impact on our children. They'll see their home utterly devoid of any example that they might, or excuse me, uh, devoid of any example of the godly example that they hear talked about from this pulpit. They might grow resentful towards you and towards the church that they're a part of. And ultimately, you'll mold their perception of their father in heaven. You know, it's one of the most terrifying things I've ever pondered is that my kid's understanding of a father in heaven is going to be somewhat influenced by me. And when they hear the phrase, God loves them and God cares for them, and they start to think, well, I've, I never saw that at home with dad. All I ever saw was, you know, he said one thing in one way and did something else in another. He, he showed that he cared in one way, but he was apathetic in another. We'd better take that job seriously. If we don't, if we're complacent and indifferent, to life falling apart around us. You know, I can't help but think of it and like this. I'm not, I'm not a picture guy with most of my sermons, but this is what it made me think of. This is really what apathy looks like to me. 
I'm, I'm not trying to be funny, I'm not trying to be irreverent, but this, is, this has been shared in a couple of group texts from time to time where the idea is that life's just falling apart all around you, and it's okay. And you might think it's funny, but really this is what apathy is, because when we're sitting there, we might think everything's fine, but really there's a lot of damage being caused around us because of what we don't care about, especially as fathers in the home. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, speaking of the children, it says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Children have a sophisticated apathy detector. They see right through us. You know, I can remember as a child looking at my own parents and seeing that in them. A lot of talk about how much we love you and how much we want what's best for you, but not a lot of action to back it up. And now that relationship is all but gone. If we aren't careful, we can get caught repeating this verse to our kids. We can say to them, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. We might say that to them. We might say that we have no greater joy than to see our kids prosper and and do well in the church. But if we just say those words, if we just post them on social media, if we buy the $50 plaque at Hobby Lobby and talk about it, but we don't show that that's actually what we care about, and it's just met with apathy in our our words and in our actions, they're going to see right through it. Again, this is not to highlight me or any of my special desires, but these are just some things I want to share with you about some things I want my children to know when it comes to the indifference of their father. These are some things I want them to see so they know that I wasn't indifferent about these things. I want my children to know that their eternity wasn't a passing thought in dad's mind. I want them to know that that I took time to explain to them the importance of godly living and striving to serve the Lord. I want them to know I didn't just expect them to figure it out on their own. I want my children to know I prepared myself for the day that they came to me with guilt over their sins. That I didn't just expect them to figure it out on their own. I want them to know that they can come to me the day they realize their sin is weighing on them and that conviction weighs heavy on their hearts. I want my children to know that I see and rejoice every time they reach a spiritual milestone. That dad isn't indifferent about those things, that he sees those things and he cares. When my son leads a song or gives his first lesson or simply takes time to serve members of the church with his time and effort, or when my daughter grows up to seek the wisdom of the older women in the congregation to strive to be a godly woman, or she talks to her friends about the gospel, I want them to know that that's something that dad cares about. And we need to be thinking about that as we're raising our children. Do they see that we care and that we're not indifferent about those things? In closing, I'd like to read from Ezekiel chapter 33. A couple of principles from the story of the watchman. Ezekiel chapter 33, beginning in verse 1, says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people, and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory, and make him their watchman. When he sees the sword coming upon that land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people... Then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. That final phrase really sends chills down my spine. 
as a father. You know, you appoint this man as a watchman over a city. He's supposed to stand guard and be prepared to see who's coming to be a threat to that city. And as a father, we're appointed as watchmen over our families. The watchman takes an interest. The watchman is enthusiastic about his job. The watchman is concerned about the people that he looks after. And as fathers, we need to be that for our families. As husbands, we need to be that for our families. The man of God is not apathetic. He is a watchman that guards that which he has charge over with great zeal. In closing, there's a quote that I'd like to read. It's not scripture, but I do believe it has some echoes of truth in it that we can all appreciate. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt delivered The Man in the Arena back in 1910, and it's always been one of my favorite speeches uh, to read because of some of the things that he talks about in there. And I believe some of it gleans what we can talk, or we can glean from it some of what we've already talked about. He said, The poorest way to face life is to face it with a sneer. There are many men who feel a kind of twisted pride and cynicism. There are many who confine themselves to criticism of the way others do what they themselves dare not even attempt. There is no more unhealthy being. It is not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Every day we have the choice to step into the arena, to have those great devotions, to have those great enthusiasms, to set aside apathy and complacency and to devote ourselves to the kingdom, to spend ourselves in a worthy cause. You might say to spend and be spent. Made it all the way to the end of the lesson without quoting 2 Corinthians 12, 15. That's a record for me. But we can put aside apathy and take on zeal. And if you're here today and that's been a struggle of yours, we want to pray with you and pray for you if that's a need that you have. Or if you're here today and you're ready to become a member of God's kingdom, to be buried with your Lord in baptism and to walk in newness of life, we stand ready to help you with that need. If you'll come and make it known by sitting on the front pew while we stand and sing.